This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Philippians chapter 2, if you would, uh, continue our series entitled Magnify Jesus. If you have the Hui Kala app, which you should, uh, if you click on the button that says podcast, click on Magnify Jesus. You can click on today's message. There's a button that says fill in notes. It'll actually pop up a web browser for you so that you can type in your notes for today's message. Uh, It's just a, a way that you can take notes or just jot some thoughts down as we go through this passage of scripture. This is message number 37. We are blazing through the book of Philippians, right? Uh, We're just going verse by verse uh, as we go. And we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Can you believe that? We're just cruising. Uh, We'll be in verses uh, 12 and 13 uh, here today as we take a look at this. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse number 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. As we look at this passage this morning, Paul equates our salvation together with works, and sometimes this passage can be confusing to folks, and some people have definitely misapplied this or misinterpreted this passage to mean that our salvation allows us to be, I'm sorry, our works allow us to be saved, and that our salvation is tied directly to our works, which really couldn't be further from the truth. So it's important that we unpack this and find out what that really means. There's definitely a link between our salvation and our works, but maybe not not in the way that some people think for sure. So it's important that we uh, unpack that. Before we do, Paul says, uh, it's important to understand that Paul started the church at Philippi. Uh, and so as he writes to the church at, at Philippi, the book of Philippians, uh, it's a letter that he's writing to a church that he started from scratch and pastored for a little while. And so in Paul's second missionary journey, this was the first church that he planted in Europe. Uh, Philippi was in southern Greece. And so as he went over to Greece, he planted a church, the church at Philippi. And so he pastored the church for a while. He left. And about 10 years later, he finds himself in prison and he writes the letter back to the church at Philippi. And he says to him, guys, you did a great job of following Jesus when I was there, but after I went, you guys took it up a notch and continued to obey the Bible even to a greater degree. And so he's encouraging them on their growth that they find in Jesus Christ. And so we'll take a look at that today and how that impacts us as well. As a jumping off point this morning and just by way of introduction, it's important to understand from the very get-go that when it comes to salvation, we're saved by grace, not by works. And so sometimes people can confuse this uh, passage here that we're looking at this morning and think that our works or the good religious things that we do is what saves us and takes us to heaven. That could not be further from the truth. We are saved by grace alone. Uh, Keep your finger here in the book of Philippians. We're going to come back in a sec, but turn a couple of pages back in your Bible to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 are a couple of verses you should highlight uh, in your Bible. If you're using a Bible app on your mobile device, you can highlight it there. If you're using your Bible, you should circle, star, underline verses uh, 8 and 9 here. These verses really couldn't be any clearer. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, 
and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, if we were saved by our religious works, I would have reason to boast about how good I am. For example, if we were saved by church attendance. In the history of who we call a Baptist church, I have missed three Sunday morning services in seven and a half years. Only three. How many have you missed? Anybody got a better record than that? Yeah, I didn't think so. So I, I have reason to boast. If our salvation were based on church attendance, I've got a reason to brag and you don't. I'm better than you and, and I always will be, right? If we have, if we're saved by our works, if we take a look at maybe who's read the Bible more or who has uh, maybe been baptized the longest or uh, things along those lines, we have reason to boast or brag because we're better than other people. But if we're saved by grace, the word grace means undeserved or unmerited favor. If we're saved not based on how good we are, but how gracious God is, then what verse 9 says is true. We don't have any reason to boast or brag. I frankly can't brag about anything this morning because I am a sinner. I have broken God's law. I am not a righteous man. I am not a good person in and of myself. So I have no reason to brag or boast this morning, but I have reason to boast in the grace of God. I can't brag about me, but I can brag all day about how good God is. I can't brag about how good of a person I am, but I can tell you how great my God is. I can't tell you about how loving I am because, frankly, I'm a miserable person on my own. But I can tell you about how loving our God is. And so this tells us that we can't brag on our religious pedigree or the religious works that we do or our church attendance or uh, who baptized us or where we got baptized at or anything along those lines. We can only rely on the grace of God. And so we're saved based on God's unmerited or undeserved favor to us. The only thing that we have to bring to God is our sin. You see, God doesn't want our religious works to save us. God doesn't want our church attendance or our baptism to save us. God wants us to give up our sin to him. The book of Isaiah, chapter number 64, says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. And sometimes, not today, but sometimes you should study out that phrase, filthy rags, and see what it means. It means more than just uh, dirty, cut-up pieces of towels. The filthy rags in the sight of God are filthy and nasty and repugnant, and we don't come to God because we're really good people, and we don't come to God with, with how great we are. We come to God completely and totally broken in need of healing. We come to God with a gang, a truckload of sin that needs to be forgiven, We don't come to God as good people who just need to be cleaned up a little bit. Unfortunately, our society and uh, and uh, many churches have adopted this idea from our society that inside of every person is a beautiful and unique butterfly that's just waiting to get out. And the, the world has hardened you and added a bunch of junk on the outside, but if we could peel off all the nasty junk on the outside, that inside is this beautiful butterfly that's just waiting to spread its wings and get out. That's inside of every human being. We just got to get all the nasty off so that we can get to that butterfly underneath. <laughs> the Bible says that couldn't be further from the truth. That the more that we peel off the layers of our heart, the nastier it gets. And that when we begin to peel back the layers of our heart, we begin to find an 
open, oozing, pus-filled wound that's there. And the more that we peel back, the more repugnant and foul the smell becomes until we get to the center of who we are and we find disease, infection, repugnant sin before God. That's what we are at the core. So we're not merely good people that need to be cleaned up and taken to the next level. We're broken diseased, infected people that need to be changed from the inside out. So we don't come to God with our goodness and God goes, oh, what a great job and pets us on the head and makes us a little bit better. We come to God completely destroyed on the inside in need of God's healing. Romans chapter three, verse number 10 says it this way, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're come all together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher where their tongues they've used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace have they not known and there's no fear of God before their eyes. That describes every single one of us. The Apostle Paul says, I know in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. That there's nothing good that we have to offer God. The only thing that he wants from us is for us to give up our sin and give it to him. So what does God require of us? Oftentimes I'll share my faith with people and I'll invite them to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and they'll say things like, well, I don't know if I can like, go to church every Sunday, and so I don't want to commit to that just yet. I'm, I'm not asking you to commit to church attendance. I'm asking you to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, I don't really know if I can follow Jesus for the rest of my life, and so I'm not really ready to make that kind of commitment yet. I'm not asking you to be perfect for the rest of your life. I'm asking you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And to be saved, the only thing that God requires of you and I is our faith and our repentance. I must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I must believe that He died on the cross to pay for my sins. I must believe that He is the only way to heaven. I must believe that He died in my place and He is the only hope that I have for this life and the next. I have to have that level of faith. And then God needs my repentance. He needs me to recognize that I've been wrong, that I've sinned against Him that I'm in need of a Savior. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 tells us what it means to be saved. And friend, every single one of us need to be saved from our sins. Jesus said this in John chapter 3, verse number 3, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Jesus says in John 14, verse number 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus says, I'm the only way that you're going to make it to heaven. Jesus didn't send us through a church to get to heaven. He didn't send us through religious works to get to heaven. He sent us through himself and himself alone. Jesus is the only hope that you and I have for this life and the next. And Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Just as I was born on June 12th, 1977, I'll save you the math, I'm 43 years old, because some of you are thinking in your head already, trying to count it up. Just as I was saved, uh, I'm sorry, I was born on June 12th, 1977, I was also born again 
in April of 1986. So there has to be a time, a date, a place where I put my faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. And for you, you need to have a time where you were saved or born again. Friend, if you haven't, it's not about being a Baptist. It's not about joining our church. It's about confessing that Jesus Christ is your Savior and you're trusting in Him alone to save you. God wants your faith 100%. Yesterday, we had our uh, Sharing Jesus Evangelism training. We had probably about... 30 or so adults over here and probably 20 or so kids over there. So about 50 people learning how to share their faith. It was awesome. We had a great time together. But I shared the story of a man that I shared the gospel with uh, uh, on two separate occasions, probably over a course of about eight hours or so. Uh, this man was a Catholic. He'd grown up in the Catholic church his whole life. He'd been an altar boy, went to Catholic school, Catholic high school, Catholic college. This guy would never miss a mass to save his life. And we sat down and we began to talk about the gospel. And so he would bring up books, and we talked through the catechism of the Catholic Church, and we looked at the Bible and saw the differences and disparities there. And I asked him, Gina, I'm not asking you to put your faith in a church. I'm asking you to put your faith in Jesus alone. And we talked again for probably eight hours or so over a course of two different times. And he came down to it, and he says, I'm willing to trust in Jesus as my Savior. And I said, awesome, that's good news. He said, he said, I'd like to do that right now. And he said, I only have one question. I said, what's that? He said, can I still go to the Catholic Mass on Sundays? And I said, why would you want to? He said, I just want to make sure that I get all my bases covered. That if by putting my faith in Jesus, if that doesn't work, I want to make sure that I at least get it covered with the Mass. And I said, you can't do it that way. When we talk about putting our faith in Jesus alone, it means my faith in Jesus totally and completely, nothing else. So if you're trusting Jesus plus your baptism or Jesus plus being a really good person to take you to heaven, you haven't fully put your faith in Jesus alone. To put your faith in Jesus alone means he bears the full weight of your salvation. That I'm not trusting in Jesus over here, but I'm trusting myself over here, how good of a person I am over here. I'm trusting in Jesus alone. And if Jesus doesn't save me, I'm toast. That's what it means to have full faith in Jesus. But not only do you have to have faith in Jesus, you also have to repent of your sin. And the word repent means a change of mind, which results in a change of heart, which results in a change of action. The Greek word that's used for the word repentance in the Bible is the word metanoia, which means a change of mind. It means to agree with God. And to repent means you have to recognize I have been wrong and I want to make it right. That's what it means to repent of our sin. And so first of all, you have to have faith. Second of all, you have to have repentance. The Bible tells us, and uh, Peter uh, preaches on Acts, in Acts chapter 3, verse number 19, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. The freshing of time shall come at the presence of the Lord. And the idea is that I'm fully trusting in Jesus and I'm fully giving him over my sin and saying, I've been wrong. And friend, if you've never been saved, you've never been born again, please do that today. This is not about joining our church. This is not about getting baptized. We're not gonna take you through a class that you have to complete. It's about knowing your sins are forgiven. It's about knowing for sure that heaven is your home when you die. Faith and repentance, that's all God asks of you. It's very, very simple. And if you've never been saved, you've never been born again, today is your opportunity to do that. You don't have to be a good person to go to heaven. You just have to be forgiven. So we're saved by God's grace, not our works. We're saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ alone. If you go back to the book of Philippians, if you turn to Ephesians, flip back to Philippians chapter two, if you would, verse number 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, 
not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. You see, the mark of a true disciple of Jesus is the willingness to continue. You see, Paul, as he wrote back to this church that he had pastored for some time, he didn't see them do really well while he was there and then fizzle out later. He saw them continue to do even better and better. And if you and I will seek to be followers, committed followers of Jesus Christ, we should see continual growth in our lives as Christians. As Paul writes to this church here, he challenges them to continue on the path that they're on. Jesus is speaking to a group of folks in John chapter 8, verse number 28. And Jesus said unto them, If you've lifted up the Son of Man, you shall know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but the Father hath taught me. I speak these things. And He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. And as He spake these words, get this, and as He spake these words, many believed on Him. And then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on Him, If you continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus put people in two different categories. And this is important. I didn't create these categories. Jesus did. There were those that believed on Jesus. Those are these people that have been saved or born again. But then he says, if you continue in the things that I've taught you, then you are my disciples. The word disciples means a committed follower of. And we don't want to just be nominal Christians. We want to be committed followers of his. I'll admit, I'm a, I'm a fan of the Los Angeles Lakers. We lived in L.A. County for 10 years. And we uh, remember back in the days uh, when the Lakers were used to being in the playoffs. This year was kind of an anomaly that we like found ourselves in the playoffs. It's like, what? Uh, but uh, I've always been a, a fan of the Lakers. I've got Lakers jerseys in my closet. I've got a Lakers warm-up jacket that's totally awesome that I don't, don't get to wear because it doesn't really get cold here. Uh, i got some, some really cool Lakers stuff. And, uh, but I would call myself a fan of the Lakers, definitely not a disciple. Uh, this past year, the, the Lakers won a championship, and uh, well, we would say championship because it wasn't really the playoffs like it used to be and stuff like that. But if you put a gun to my head and said, name the starting five on the Lakers championship team this year, I'd just tell you to pull the trigger and get it over with because I have no idea. I mean, if there's a game on, I'll watch it. And I, like, I kind of have an idea as far as what guys are on the team and who's playing and who's starting and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, I, I couldn't name seven guys on the team. I just couldn't. Because I'm a casual fan. If there's a game on, I'll watch it. If you ask me who I'm pulling for, I'm pulling for the Lakers. If the Celtics are on, I still want the Celtics to lose. Uh, I mean, like, but I'm, I'm a casual fan. I definitely couldn't call myself a disciple of the Lakers. You know what I mean? I mean, there's guys who know who got what minutes and who got put in the game, who got how many rebounds and how many points this guy's average in a season and stuff like that. That's not me. I'm a casual fan. Unfortunately, when it comes to Christianity, many times people are like, well, I don't really know a lot of books of the Bible and I don't really read a lot. And I mean, if there's a church service, I would, I would probably go to it, but don't call me a disciple, unfortunately. They're casual fans of Christianity. And God hasn't called us to be casual fans. He's called us to be committed followers of Jesus. You don't need to be marginally familiar with biblical ideas. You need to be a student of God's word. You don't need to have a cursory uh, value system that moderately reflects Judeo-Christian values. You need to be a Bible-believing Christian that lives by the book. That's what he expects of you. And how do we determine whether or not you're doing that or not? Your willingness to continue. You see, anybody can do anything for a very brief period of time. 
Anybody can follow Jesus for a couple of weeks. You can do anything you want to do that you put your mind to for a very finite period of time. Uh, two years ago, uh, I was recommended to go on the Whole30 diet, the nothing but whole foods for 30 days. It was the worst 30 days of my life. It was terrible. And lest you get the idea like, oh, you get as much meat as you want, which is great, but, the, but look, you can have grilled chicken as much as you want, but you can't put barbecue sauce on it. What? What are you supposed to do with that, you know? You can eat bacon, but it has to be bacon that hasn't been cured in, in, in uh, sugar. What? You can eat beef jerky as long as it doesn't have sugar in it. What? Sugar's in everything. If you've ever read an uh, ingredient label, sugar's in everything that you eat. And so it was a very bland, very sad 30 days. It really was. Very sad. You can have as much kale as you want. I mean, if you enjoy eating wet grass, I mean, indulge yourself, you know? It was terrible. But you know what? I did it. 30 days, you can do it. Day 31, bring me creamer with my coffee, bring me sugar with this. I ate cupcakes. I ate bread for the first time in 30 days. It was glorious. It was awesome. But I say that to say 30 days. You can do anything you want for 30 days. You can follow Jesus for 30 days. That's great. Can you follow Jesus for years? Can you follow Jesus for decades? That's what he's asking for here. He's not asking you to just knuckle up and get through it for the next few weeks and follow him. He's asking you to follow him for the rest of your life. And Paul's saying to this church here, hey, it's been about a decade since I've seen you and you haven't fizzled out, you've only gotten stronger. And I hope, by the grace of God, if I look you up 10 years from now, and God, for some reason, has moved you from Honolulu to some other place in the world, I hope I can look you up 10 years from now and find you not just casually attending church on Sunday morning, but locked and loaded with the body of Christ, serving Jesus to your full capacity a decade from now. That's what I want for your life. And that's what God wants too. Not just casual Sunday morning church attenders, but real deal, locked and loaded, committed Christians that are willing to walk with Jesus. That's what he wants from you. Acts chapter 14, verse number 21, Paul's traveling to all these churches that he had started. And when he preached the gospel to that city and he taught many, they returned again to Lystria and Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue and the faith that we, through much tribulation, must enter the kingdom of God. Paul went back to these churches that he had started, people that he had led to Christ, and said, guys, keep it up, stay after it. But here's the thing. I, as your pastor, can encourage you. My job as a pastor is to shepherd you and guide you and help you stay on the path of spiritual fruitfulness. Look, I'm your cheerleader. I'm for you. I'm on your team. You, you got questions? I'll find answers for you. You need prayer? I got you. I pray for you every single day. I'm with you through this, all right? But look, I cannot micromanage your walk with God. You, at some point, have got to put your big boy pants and your big girl pants on and walk with Jesus on your own. You got to do that. Again, I can help you. I can encourage you. I can cheer you on. But you got to do the work yourself. If these people had been dependent on Paul, for Paul to keep them on the path of walking with Jesus, they would have been toast because he was gone. But Paul says, as I look back, I see you guys obeyed Jesus, not just while I was there, but after I left, you continued to grow. Now, what happens if we stop walking with Jesus? Oftentimes, people ask the question, well, if I 
get saved? What happens when I, 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 I don't measure up? What happens if I go through a period of time where I quit? What happens to my salvation? I'm thankful that quitting on Jesus or going back to our sin does not negate our salvation. Man, what an amazing encouragement that that is. Because none of us are perfect. Your growth as a Christian, your walk with Jesus, unfortunately, is not just going to be up and to the right hockey stick growth. I wish it was, but it's not. What you're going to see is you're going to see ups and downs, peaks, valleys, back, forth. But you should be trending upward, but it's not going to be a straight shot upward. There's going to be some ups and downs along the way. But the idea is that you continue. But the good news is, during your valleys, during your times where you go back to your sin, during your times where you just don't have a spiritual appetite for the things of God, I'm thankful that God doesn't take away our salvation. You see, unfortunately, many people have the idea that I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. When I stop being a good person, I'm not going to heaven anymore. While that might make sense logically, it doesn't add up biblically. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that when you are saved, you're born again, that you are adopted into the family of God, that you become his son, that you become his daughter, that you're given eternal life. And God doesn't take that away every time you misbehave. God isn't a parent that every time you misbehave, he kicks you out of the family until you can get your act together and then you can come back. I'm thankful that Romans chapter 5, the end of Romans chapter 5, Paul says this, where sin did abound... Grace did much more abound. That while we sin, God's grace is always greater than our sin and it always forgives whatever sin that we have, always to a greater degree. So if you sin a little bit, God forgives a little bit more than your sin. If you sin a whole lot, God's, sin is all, God's grace is always greater than our sin and always will be. And so then some carnal Christian gets the idea, well, how about that then? If I sin, God automatically forgives it, right? Right? So I can keep sinning and God will keep forgiving, right? Technically. So Paul knows our carnal hearts. So in Romans chapter 6, verse number 1, right after Romans chapter 5 where God says, where sin abounds, grace and much more abounds, Paul says this. So what shall we say then? Shall we continue in our sin that grace may abound? What's the answer to that? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? (laughs) Could you go back to your sin? Yeah, but why would you? It's like asking the guy who just got out of jail. He says, can I ever go back to jail? Well, yeah, I guess you could, but why? And Romans 6 goes on to say, hey, you've been set free from this. Why do you want to go back to that? That doesn't make sense. But technically you could. But it doesn't take away your salvation. It doesn't take away the fact that you're a child of God, that you're saved, that you're forgiven, that you're going to heaven. And so some people say, well, then why, why would I even want to follow Jesus if I can just still continue to sin forever and just continue to get away with it? Why would I do that? Because quitting on Jesus or going back to our sin forfeits fellowship, joy, and future blessings. <laughs> just because you can sin doesn't mean it's going to be fun or easy. 
I often explain it this way. I have a son, Vanderlei, who's 19 years old now. Just turned 19 uh, last month. If he decides that he wants to go out on his own and live in opposition to the things that he's been taught, he wants to get into a lifestyle of sin, and he wants to move out and go do his own thing and live in sin, do I still have a son? Yeah, of course. He's chosen to be disobedient. He's chosen to rebel against the values that he's been given, but I still have a son. What if he calls me up one day and says, I'm no longer your son? Do I still have a son? Yeah, yeah I mean, he's a knucklehead, but he's still my son. I've changed my name. I'm no longer Vanderlei King. My name now is Icy Little Vanny. <laughs> that's my name. Don't call me King. That's not my name anymore. Do I still have a son? He has gone off the deep end, and his mom's crying herself to sleep every single night, but I still got a son. I drive through Waikiki, I see him hung over, sleeping on the sidewalk. Do I still have a son? Breaks my heart, but I still got a son. I heard he's involved to drug, in drugs and other illegal activity. Do I still have a son? Definitely. He's killing me. Absolutely killing me, but I got a son. He shows up one day, knocks on the front door, and says, Dad, I'm sorry. Do I still have a son? Absolutely, son. Welcome home. Come in. Get in the shower. You stink. <laughs> right? How do we think that God is less gracious than I am? How do we think that God is less loving than I am? God is less merciful than I am. That we walk out the front door, God says, uh, yeah, good. Don't let the front door hit you on the way out. You're not my son anymore. When you decide to get your act together, I might consider having you back. Why don't we have that idea of God? Again, you read the story of the prodigal son who goes out, spends his inheritance on riotous living, and when he decides to come back to the father, even as a servant, not as a son, the father runs to see him, puts a ring on his finger, kills a fatted calf, has a party, and says, my son was once dead, and now he's alive. But here's the problem. The prodigal son was welcomed back of being a son, but he missed out on the blessing of being a son for the period that he was a knucklehead. He forfeited the fellowship that he had with his father. He had no relationship at all with his dad during that period of time. He had no joy during that period of time. The Bible says he sat and ate the husks of the pigs that he was slopping. And if you understand Jewish history, the pig was one of the most unclean animals known to man. And the fact that he was lying with the pigs and eating their food just showed that this guy had hit the bottom of the barrel. And he forfeited fellowship, he forfeited joy, and he forfeited the blessings that came from being a son because he was living apart from his father. And so if you and I choose to go back to a lifestyle of sin or to turn our back on the father, please understand you do it at your own peril. In Hebrews chapter 12, you're taking notes right out of Hebrews chapter 12 in your margin there, it tells us that if we are a child of God whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, which means he disciplines. He's going to spank you and it's going to hurt until you're able to come back to a right relationship with him. So please understand, can you turn your back on God? Yeah, but why would you, for heaven's sakes? Could you go back to a life of sin? Yeah, but why? It doesn't even make sense. The things that you would give up to be able to do that. But Paul's writing to these folks here and saying, hey, 
You're not saved because you're good people. You're not saved because you didn't quit. You're saved because God is gracious. And your ability to continue is just going to continue to give you God's blessings upon your life. You see, you didn't do anything to earn your salvation, and you can't do anything to keep your salvation. If it's a gift of God, which the Bible says that it is, there's nothing you and I can do to earn it. It's a gift. And the only thing that you can do with a gift is receive it or reject it. And God has offered you a gift of eternal life and you have the opportunity to receive it. Now, what does that have to do with our works then? So if we're not saved by our works, does that mean that good works don't count for anything, that they don't matter for anything? No. You see, once we're saved, then the sanctification process begins. Think of it this way. You're saved, salvation. Then comes sanctification, which takes place over the course of your lifetime. Then, the day that you die... You see Jesus Christ face to face. The Bible says when we see him, we'll be made like him, which means we no longer have a body that's limited by our physical limitations. We no longer have a body that's limited by our sinful nature. We're made like Jesus without sin. That's the process. It's called glorification. So salvation, you get saved. Glorification, the day you see Jesus, everything in the middle there is sanctification. Now, a good comprehensive definition of sanctification uh, was written by the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of 1833. I'll pause here for just a second and say, we are a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. While there might be certain confessions and creeds that hold value or are good or that are even right or biblical, we don't hold to confessions and creeds. I couldn't tell you anything that's in the, the London Confession of Faith. I couldn't tell you anything other than the New Hampshire Baptist Confession other than this because it's a good definition of sanctification. But this is just a really good definition of sanctification. When we talk about sanctification, it means the process by which, according to the will of God, we're made partakers of his holiness. This means that you and I are distancing ourselves from sin. That is a progressive or ongoing work. It's begun in regeneration, the day that we're saved, and it's carried on in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. You see, real lasting change takes place on the inside by the work of the Holy Spirit the sealer and comforter, and the continual use of the appointed means. How do we do sanctification? The word of God, self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, and prayer. I love that definition. It's a great definition of what it means to be sanctified. The idea of sanctification is this. Holiness, righteousness. That means if sin is here, I want to get away from that so there's a little bit of space between me and sin. That's what it means to be sanctified. Sanctification means the killing off of my old self to be more like Jesus each and every day. When I, I got saved as a nine-year-old boy, but I grew up in a church that didn't teach a lot about sanctification or holy righteous living. Basically, the idea of the church that I grew up in, while it was doctrinally conservative, it was uh, by practice very liberal, very carnal in nature, in the fact that being saved really didn't mean that you were any different than unsafe people as far as your behavior, the way that you live your life, and a terrible way to, to, to live, but it was all my parents knew, put it that way. And so the church that I grew up in, I knew a lot of Bible stories, I knew that I was saved, but I didn't know much of anything else, and so when I got to be about 22, 23 years old, we got into a good Bible preaching church that challenged us in the area of sanctification, and we began to grow to be more like Jesus. And as I grew to be more like Jesus, there were things in my life that had to change. 
it's important to understand that Christianity is a come-as-you-are faith. You don't have to clean your act up and come to Jesus. You come exactly the way that you are, warts and all, scars and all, wounds and all. That's fine. You can come as you are. But please understand that Christianity is a faith where you cannot stay as you are. You are required to change. So come as you are. You just can't stay as you are. You got to change. And change always takes place from the inside out. Always. I can change the exterior very, very easily. I can put on nice clothes. I can carry a big Bible. I can turn on a Christian radio station on 11 in my car as I drive. I can say, amen. I can say, praise the Lord. I can say, hey, good to see you. Glad you're here today. All that's very easy to do. I can do that in a matter of hours. Change on the inside, that's a lot harder. That takes a long time. And so in this passage, verse number uh, 12, we're for my beloved brethren that you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What he's saying in this passage is this. The work of salvation takes place first on the inside, but it needs to start working itself out in your life. That it's a change that takes place on the inside, but will eventually have external effects. And that's the process which we call sanctification. Again, I, I grew up uh, in, in a Christian home, a very moral home, I guess you could say, for sure. Um, I, rode this, I rode the school bus to, to school uh, as a kid, and I told my, my wife and I when we got married, look, if we ever have kids and they go to public school, they're never riding the school bus, ever. Because every bad thing I ever learned as a kid, I always learned on the bus, always. You know, and you got the kids on the back that are in like fifth grade that sit on the back three rows of the bus that they know everything, right? It's like the further back you go on the bus, the smarter everybody gets, right? And so if you wanted to know cuss words, the guy in the back three rows, they all knew cuss words. Uh, you wanted to find out about sex in second or third grade, the guys in the back three rows know all about sex, and that's all they talk about, right? And so I, I mean, if there's a cuss word to know, I knew it by the time I was in second or third grade. I didn't know how to use it right or in what context to use it, but I knew the words, right? I didn't know what any of it meant, but I knew the words. And so I grew up in, in public school. You know, I, I played sports. You know, I mean, there's locker room talk and there's things like that. And so I, I developed a very, very foul mouth. I joined the military out of high school. And, and, and you know, cussing like a sailor is just one of those things that you do. You know, to, to be able to communicate, you have to be able to communicate forcefully. And you, you do that by using crude, harsh language. When I started following Jesus, I realized that's got to change. But that doesn't change easily because my entire life I've talked this way. But if I really believe the Bible to be true, and I do, and it says let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, that's talking about crude language and crude talk, and that part has to change. And so I realize some things in my life got to change to be more like Jesus. And so, man, two decades ago, I began to change the words that I used. It was hard, man, it was hard. I purposely began to cut off the type of music that I listened to that used that kind of language. I cut out the movies that I watched that used that kind of language. I tried to limit my interactions with other people who would use that kind of language. And I began to basically try to stop myself when I would think those thoughts. Before they ever came out, I would stop thinking those thoughts before they ever came out. And man, it's just 
not a part of my vernacular anymore. It's just, I, I mean, uh, a couple of years ago, I was working on my car and I had the car fall on my, uh, on the jack stands slipped and my car fell and sandwiched my finger between the van and, and the jack and ended up getting 20 stitches in my first two fingers. When the car fell on my, my hand, I screamed out, oh my soul. Like, top 50 words that are going to come out of my mouth when I split my fingers open is not a curse word. You know why? Because it's taken me two decades to get rid of that stuff. I'm talking about sanctification. Growth to be more like Jesus. And here's the thing. If two decades later of walking with Jesus, the number one problem that I have is using foul language, I haven't grown very much in sanctification. I shouldn't be struggling with 20 years later the same things I was struggling with 20 years ago. It's a progressive, continual work that I should be doing. Sanctification is about growth in holiness, righteousness, and Christ-likeness. I'm growing to be like Jesus day by day by day. And again, if I'm struggling with the same things that I struggled with 20 years ago, I'm not growing in Christ-likeness. I should be able to look back six months and say, I think I'm making forward progress over the last six months. Again, it's not going to be always up and to the right, but it should be trending upwards, my growth to be more like Jesus. That's what Paul means when he says, work out your own salvation. If, if God has changed you on the inside, it should come out of you. Our salvation only takes place once, but it should have daily, practical, tangible applications every single day for the rest of my life. I just got saved one time when I was a nine-year-old boy, but that decision as a nine-year-old boy should have daily implications every single day. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse number two, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it that may bring forth more fruit. Jesus said this, if you're connected to the vine, which he says, I am the vine, ye are the branches, every branch should bring forth fruit. Me and my brother, when we were kids, we planted apple trees in our backyard. And it took a while, but we eventually got fruit on those apple trees. It took a few years before we actually saw apples on there. But in the summertime, if you've ever seen an apple tree, you don't have to go out to an apple tree and go, hmm, I wonder if there's any fruit on this apple tree. I don't know about that. No, you look and there's either apples hanging off the branch or there's no apples. There's, there's no question. And Jesus says, every branch that's connected to me should bring forth fruit. And if you don't see fruit in your life, there's basically two reasons, okay? Number one, you're not saved. If there's no fruit in your life, you might not be saved. Now, be very, very careful with this statement, okay? I want to be very clear. First of all, we don't judge other people's fruit or lack of fruit and make a determination whether or not they're saved. You and I are never called to be fruit inspectors, okay? It's not my job to go, hmm, that guy over there, I don't really see any fruit in his life. He must not be saved. Careful, don't do it. And again, I don't need to look at my own life and say, I've repented of my sins, I put faith in Jesus Christ, but I don't have fruit, therefore I must not be saved. That's not what we're talking either. But Jesus says if you're connected to the branch, if you're connected to the vine, which is me, there'll be fruit. So first reason you might not have fruit is because you might not be saved. If you're not saved, really easy way to fix it. Get saved today. But the second and more common reason that people don't have fruit, sanctification. You're not growing in Christ's likeness. 
You just got your ticket punched to heaven. You sit back in your seat and you put your feet up and you go, whew, glad that's over with. I'll just hang out here till Jesus comes back. And you don't see any fruit because you're not going through the process of sanctification. And if that's you, easy way to fix it. Start working today to be more like Jesus. Now again, very clear. I don't work so that I'll get saved. I work because I'm already saved. Because I'm saved, I want to do the work. Does that make sense? I don't try to do good stuff so that I'll get saved. I want to do good stuff because I'm already saved. The works that I do are an outgrowth of what's already taken place in my life. My good works that I have to offer are because God's already made a change on the inside that's making its way out of my life. People try to do the opposite. They try to do good works and hope that it fixes their heart. It doesn't work that way. You got it backwards. They try to do good works and hopefully Jesus will forgive their sin. No, no, no. Jesus forgives my sin and then the good works come out as a result of it. That's what he means by work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God's done something inside of you. It needs to be happening on the outside now. While we don't work to be saved, our salvation should always be at work. Always. Because I'm a child of God, because I've been saved, because I've been born again, my faith needs to be getting something done. Always. James put it very, very clearly. He said, show me your faith without works. And I think he writes almost sarcastically, like, I'd really like to see that. Show me your faith without actually doing anything. I'd like to see that. And he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. By the way that I live my life, you'll see my faith on display for everybody. And James even goes so far as to say this, faith without works is what? Help me. Dead. It's of no use whatsoever. <laughs> you call yourself a Christian, but it doesn't change your life. What good is that? You call yourself a Christian, but it doesn't change what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? What good is that? Faith without works is dead. But you want faith that's alive? It's a faith that's constantly at work, getting stuff done. That's the idea. And so our salvation and our works are inextricably linked together. You can't get away from it. You just got to understand the relationship between it. So my works do not save me, but my salvation will cause me to get to work. That's what he means. And that, friends, makes all the difference in the world. Every single solitary world religion, with the exception of Christianity, says this. Do this, do this, do this, do this, and maybe you'll find what you're looking for. Every single world religion without fail. Christianity is the only world religion that flips that. Everything has already been done for you. You just need to receive it. And so, but this idea that once I receive that gift of salvation, now everything else in my life changes. My mind changes, my heart changes, and now my actions changes. Why? Because repentance and sanctification are taking place. So again, 
When it talks about working out your own salvation, some people have misunderstood and misapplied that verse to mean like, oh, I've got to work so that I can be saved. No, no, no. The idea is that the work in you has already been done. Now it's the time for that work to come out. Again, Christians who just show up to church once a week and sing a couple of songs and stay awake for an hour and they call that their Christian duty, you have greatly misunderstood what it means to be a Christian. If you think that's all God requires of you is, is marginal church attendance and sit in a chair for an hour or so and, and you can check it off your list for the week, you don't understand Christianity. Tomorrow morning when you go to work, Christianity is supposed to go to work with you. The way that you work at work is a direct reflection of your faith. The things that you prioritize will be a direct reflection of your faith. How you spend the next 24 hours will be a direct reflection of your faith. Your faith is always at work if you're doing it the right way. Take a look at verse number 11. <laughs> I'm sorry, verse number 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You see, the good news is God will do the work if you'll simply allow him to use you. This is not about you and I working harder or doing better or knuckling up and just for a short period of time trying to work harder. It's allowing God to work in us and through us. It's about submission and surrender to God to say, hey, God, you're the boss, you're the Lord, you're the master, you get to call the shots, whatever you want to do, you're free to do that in me and through me. Angela and I had been married for probably less than two years. We'd been walking with Jesus for maybe nine months at the time. And we heard a pastor preach a message on obedience. And uh, I remember she and I following the service, we, I reached out for her hand, we prayed together, and we prayed a really simple prayer. I, I prayed, and it was this. God, from here on out, whatever you tell us to do, we're just going to do it. Now, mind you, we were marginally attending church at this time. We had just made a decision to kind of start doing things God's way. But we made a commitment, and we really meant it that night. God, whatever you tell us to do, we're just going to do it. Amen. That was it. It wasn't some big, huge, long prayer. There were no tears shed. You know, we didn't, didn't you know, leave thinking like, whoa, our life is totally changed forever. But that decision totally altered the trajectory of our life forever. And, and I can honestly say that I'm standing here today and you're seated in the seat that you're in today because of that prayer that got prayed that night and our willingness to follow through on that. Guaranteed. Because when God was moving on us to start Hui Kala and come to the city of Honolulu and leave Southern California and leave our 3,500 square foot house that we had just bought with a three-car garage and a basketball hoop that we had just put up in our backyard and our dog that we had just bought. When he asked us to leave all of that and come here, it was kind of a no-brainer. <laughs> we already said whatever you tell us to do, we'll do it. And I'd like to think that here in this room, there are some Christians that if God was really, really clear with you and asked you to do something, you just do it. If God would speak to you with such certainty as, you know, picking up the phone and him saying, hey, this is God, I want you to pack up everything you got, move to India and be missionaries and just trust me by faith. I'd like to think that a good percentage of, of us in this room would say, if God was that ridiculously clear with me, it would be hard, but I'd be willing to do it. I'd like to think that there's people that if God spoke with that level of certainty in my life, I'd be willing to do it. 
And this verse says that it's God that wants to work in you and to fulfill his good will in your life. But how about this? God has already spoken with incredible certainty. Not that you're supposed to go to India and be a missionary, but you're supposed to go to work tomorrow, supposed to go to school this week, supposed to go out and have lunch today and be a real deal Christian whose salvation works out wherever you go. That is abundantly clear. And the question is, are you willing to be obedient to that this week? God might not have called you to be a missionary to India yet, but he's called you to be a missionary to your community this week. Are you willing to do that? And it's so funny sometimes. I've talked to people before who, uh, there's this one guy who sporadically attended church here, and I asked him one day, like, hey, dude, what's your plan? And he says, oh, I'm going to be a a missionary to uh, Ethiopia. Oh, okay. Tell me about that. Oh, I just feel a burning need to meet to meet the spiritual needs of the people in Ethiopia. I said, oh, I said, do you have another church that you normally attend? He said, no, man, this is my church. <laughs> You've been here three times in the last six months. This is your church? Yeah. Oh, well, are you reaching people here? No, I'm waiting until I get to Africa to do that. What? And I'll often tell people, God's never going to call you to do full-time what you're not willing to do part-time. <laughs> if you're not going to Reach your coworker with the gospel that you rub shoulders with 40 hours a week. You're not going to go to Ethiopia and do it. Be faithful where you are right now. And there's a biblical principle. Be faithful over a few things and I'll make you ruler over many. Just start small. And, and God might not have called you to be a missionary to a foreign field, but he called you to be a missionary on your street this week. Can you, can you start there? And he said, I don't know if I can do it or not. I'll let you in on a secret. You can't do it. That's why it's God that worketh in you. With God's help, do you think you can do it? Probably. No, not probably. Definitely. Because the Bible says, with God, nothing is impossible. Are you willing to allow God to use you? I know that he wants to. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 21. If a man therefore purge himself of these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet or appropriate for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. You see, you and I are just vessels. We're pitchers, we're bowls. God wants to pour into us so that we can pour out. The problem is many times God pours into us and we take it and we go, ooh, this is good, I think I'll hang on to it. No, no, no. We're to be vessels of God moving God's grace to other people. You know why? Because we've received God's salvation by grace. We're to work that out in our life, and God wants to do a continual work in us that goes through us. That's how this works. Again, I was a Christian for so long that got my ticket punched to heaven and sat back and and propped my feet up and waited for Jesus to come back. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a continual work of being more like Jesus and continual work of impacting people around us because we've been saved. A couple of final thoughts we're running. First of all, if someone followed you around for the next seven days, 24 hours a day, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you of being a Christian? Just like CSI shows up at your house, they confiscate your laptop, your iPad, your cell phone, They do a forensic deep dive on all your devices that you have. They take a look at your banking accounts. They take a look at your calendar. 
where you go, what you do, how you spend your time, would people be able to say, these people are totally Christians? This guy, I don't know what else he's got going on, but there's definitely obvious that this guy's a Christian. Our uh, house that we bought in California, we spent probably the first six weeks or so getting things settled, moved in, situated, and stuff like that. Then we made a, a plate of cookies and took them over to our neighbor with an invite to church. And so we rang the guy's doorbell and brought him out, and he said, I said, hey, I said, I'm Anthony, your neighbor next door. We just moved in a few weeks ago. I just wanted to stop by and say, hey, and we're new to the neighborhood. I wanted to bring you a plate of cookies and also invite you to our church. And he goes, I knew it. I go, what? He goes, I knew you guys were Christians. Oh. He goes, I was telling my life, my wife, like clockwork, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoons, Wednesday nights, every single time without fail. They haven't missed a week yet since they've been here. They're always going out. I know for a fact they're Christians. You've been watching us like that? <laughs> That's a little bit creepy. Like, um, I'll make sure I close my blinds at night. And uh, that's weird. But then I thought to myself, this guy, his name is Richard, lived next door. He knows we're Christians because he's been watching us. You know what they did every single time I was out back with my kids? I paid really close attention to the way that I raised my voice at my kids, the things that I said, but I come, because I know this guy's listening and he knows we're Christians. But you know what, is that a bad thing? No, that's the way that it should be. I'm willing to be a Christian and let people know it, and I'm, I'm inviting you to examine my life. I'm telling you in advance, it's not perfect, but I'm trying to grow to be more like Jesus every day. And if you look hard enough, you're going to find a lot of flaws, but if you look hard enough, you're going to see a lot of grace too. But would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you of being a Christian based on the way that you interact with people, the words that you use, the people that you talk with, or would a deep dive of all of your life show the opposite? Paul says, hey, I've been gone for a little while, but while I've been gone, you've actually continued to be more like Christ in my absence, and I'm thankful for that. Second question, how does your salvation work itself out in your life? If God's changed you on the inside, how is that coming out on the outside? What changes do you see in your life as a result of being saved? What areas of your life has it touched? Maybe a better question is what areas of your life have you made off limits? That you say, God, you got everything up to this point, don't go past this. Next, as you look back at the last six weeks, six months, six years in your life, do you see growth in sanctification? Do you see me growing to be more like Christ? Or do you see a regression I'll often ask people, when was the time in your life where you were on fire, closest to God that you've ever been in your life, like mountaintop, like felt like you could get out and high five God when you got out of bed in the morning? When was the last time you were that close to God? And sometimes people say, oh, I remember when I was in college, I was part of this college Bible study and stuff like that, and that was probably the time in my life where I was the closest to God. <laughs> Did you know that there's a Bible word for when you're really close to God and then you're not any longer? Do you know what that Bible word is? Anybody know? Backsliding. <laughs> it's not a positive sense. We should be able to say, yeah, it was like last week. I remember that. I should be striving to be closer to God than I've ever been in my entire life. And if I can look at a time in my life where I was closer to God than I am now, I am backslidden. Therefore, I need to get back to a right relationship with God and get close with Him again. But I should be able to look back and see a continual growth of more Christ-likeness in my life. I mean, being more like Jesus as I grow. 
If you have kids, you'll be able to look back at your kids and realize how foolish you were in your early days of raising your kids, right? My son Thatcher is 26 now. I look back and I'm embarrassed by the things that I did when he was like five or six, right? Just like, oh, I'm a little bit wiser now. But I look back and my growth as a parent, and my growth as a parent also follows my growth as a Christian too, that the more that I become more like Christ, the less angry and bullheaded I am and stubborn that I am and have to have my own way or prove a point. The more gracious, the more merciful, the more kind, the more loving I am because I'm growing to be more like Christ. Do you see that kind of trend in your own life? If not, you might not be growing in sanctification. Final question. If God asked you to do something, would you do it? I think most of us say, yeah, absolutely. Okay, he is. He's asking you. Would you lay down your sin and never pick it up again? It's so funny sometimes as Christians, we sometimes rationalize our sin. Oh, that's just a bad habit. Oh, I have a foul mouth. That's just a bad habit that I have. No, it's a sin before a holy God that's keeping you from growing in sanctification and Christ-likeness. Well, I probably waste too much time on the internet. That's just a bad habit of mine. No, you're a sluggard and lazy and you're struggling spiritually because you're addicted to social media. Let's stop making excuses for our sin. Well, I struggle with pornography because I'm not having my needs met in other areas. No, you are a pervert who is addicted to pornography. Let's stop making excuses for our sin. God is asking you to walk in holiness and righteousness. Will you? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, then do it. And I'm telling you this, if you continue to hang on to your sin and make excuses for it, you're forfeiting fellowship with the Father, you're forfeiting your joy, and you're forfeiting future blessings that God wants to pour out upon you. For what? To hang on to your sin? Not worth it. Most important thing in the entire universe, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, you don't have inside of you what it takes yet to be able to make the changes necessary. You need to put your faith in Jesus. You need to repent of your sin and you need to be born again today. And the Holy Spirit will come inside of you and will change you from the inside out. This is not about turning over a new leaf because when you turn over a new leaf, the next time the wind blows, you turn right back over again. This is not about a new fad that you're going through. This is not like a new diet. This is definitely not Whole30. This is like whole lifetime. We're not asking you to make brief changes for a short periodic time. We're asking you to change your life to be like Jesus. That's where the good stuff is found. Would you be willing to do that? Oh, man, it'll change your life. For those of us that know Jesus Christ as Savior... Is there an area where you need to grow? Is there sin that you need to leave behind? Is there some growth in sanctification that you need to take a step up? Do it now. Continue to grow to be more like Jesus. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.